I love you. I love you. Y'all gathered here, I love you. Y'all hearing this or seeing it online, I love you. And while I feel warm affection for many of you personally and could do for more of you if we'd sit down and chat for a bit, that's not what I mean. I love you in the verbal sense, as a verb, not just out loud. I am loving you, might be the broken English way of putting this, but it's still probably better. I am loving you. God's active love is there in me, in you, in you, in all of us together. After all, God's love is not just a feeling, not just that warmth that I talked about with the kids. God's love is an active verb. I'm going to go into Greek for a moment here. Ha theos agapai, God loves. Ha theos ainai agape, God is love. That's 1 John 4, 8, if you're wondering. I'm trying to keep up here. God loves you. God is love. God's love is in you. Now, throughout this sermon series based on John Philip Newell's book, The Rebirthing of God, we've been noting ways that God is being rebirthed in the world through connections with the earth, with compassion, with light, with spiritual practice, with nonviolence, and now, finally, with love. As the Apostle Paul says to the church in Corinth, in everything, strive to love. In everything, strive to love. For your love and my love are of the same root. God's perfect love in all things. Our very beings are created by God. God's love spoken into being not just once, but constantly. God's love spoken into being constantly. Now, the French philosopher, mystic, and political activist Simone Weil, a Christian with Jewish heritage, described the universe as a vibration of God. John Philip Newell summarizes her position this way. She saw everything as spoken into being by God. At the heart of that divine utterance is the sound or vibration of love. The universe is an expression of love, and everything in the universe is essentially a means to love. The rising sun is a means to love, as is the whiteness of the moon at night. Every life form, the shape of the weeping willow by the distant pond, the song of the robin in the hedgerow, the light in the eyes of every creature, all these are means to love. I am a means to love as are you, your children and your nation. Do we know that? Do, you, do we know that this is our sacred role in the world? You see, you are a vibration of God's love in the world. You can live your life vibrating in harmony with God or work to be out of sync with God's love, but you can never escape it completely. Now, that could be terrifying if it were anyone other than God and anything other than God's love. Instead, it should be comforting. 
In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus lifts up the Deuteronomy passages that speak of love as the greatest commandments. He says you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. God's love is the foundation of our being, and so to return our love to God and to each other helps us find that harmony in the universe, helps us be that harmony in the universe. If we listen for God's voice in each other, we are set free to see each other as unique expressions of God outside the bounds of our human classification. You are a unique expression of God in the world. And nothing we can do can put that into a neat little box. You're outside the bounds of human classification. And no matter if we try to bring harmony among ourselves first, or first try to bring harmony with the way that God sets out for us, we find ourselves more in harmony with each other and with God. I've used this illustration before, but think of a ship's wheel with God as the hub and the spokes being different people or different groups of people coming off of it. No matter how the wheel turns, no matter what happens, the closer you are to God, the closer you are to every other spoke on that wheel, every other spoke on that wheel. And the closer you are to every other spoke on that wheel, the closer you are to the hub by the nature of it. The lines all converge at the hub. On the other hand, if you intentionally move away from other people, saying this one's not worthy of your time or this one disgusts you or you are somehow better than this other one, you find yourself moving away from God, away from the hub, as well as each other. It's in this moving away from the hub environment that Paul wrote his famous hymn on love, 1 Corinthians 13. Though it's often used at weddings, it was not written to celebrate romantic love, but to call a community back together that was increasingly trying to pull itself apart. There is no arrogance in love, Paul says. It's never rude, crude, or indecent. It's not self-absorbed. Love doesn't tally wrongs or celebrate injustice. Truth is love's delight. Truth helps to set our harmonies back in sync with each other. If we are vibrations and we get out of sync with God and with each other, it's truth that helps pull us back. Truth and love go hand in hand. For speaking truth without love is harsh, while speaking love without truth is simply impossible. Paul writes, what if I speak in the most elegant languages of people or in the exotic languages of the heavenly messengers, but I live without love? Well, then anything I say is like the clanging of brass or a crashing cymbal. Now, of this, crashing cymbal is straightforward enough, even if you don't know the context in Paul's day, where symbols were used in particular pagan worship services to bring disorder into the worship space, to bring it so that you were distracted from all that was going on around you, separated from God, separated from each other. The idea was you were floating alone. These symbols, symbols with a C, not symbols with an S, crashed loudly and separated you from each other. Clanging of brass on the other hand, is probably something of a mistranslation, even if that is the more common one these days. You see, the city of Corinth 
uh, where Paul was writing this letter to, was famous for its production of metallic brass objects. They were a brass manufacturing area, made brass, uh, everything from polished brass mirrors, if you want to get an idea of this, maybe try to look at yourself in the top of the baptismal font up here. Um, you won't really have a clear vision. Brass is good for many things. Being a mirror is not one of them. It was better than anything else they had, though. To symbols, like we just talked about, crashing brass symbols. To speaking tubes for actors on the Greek stage. Now, remember, they didn't have microphones, so these speaking tubes are something like a megaphone that were built into the mask that they would wear. And those speaking tubes were made in Corinth out of brass as well. And it's that that this clanging of brass probably refers. The same word that's translated clanging also means echoing in Greek. The thought is then that this would be an echoing speaking tube, allowing the words to project further, but adding that rather tinny, I'd say brassy if that didn't mean something else, but that tinny quality to the voice. It makes the words able to be heard at a further distance, but more difficult to distinguish from each other, loud and echoing. That may be the context then of the clashing, or, sorry, the clanging or echoing of brass that Paul refers to here. So then in context, that particular part of the scripture reads, if you speak beautiful words, but do not speak in love, it's like the hollow echoes of actors speaking through brass tubes on the stage or the loud clanging of cymbals that distracts you from your connection with God and each other. It's not unusual for disagreements to arise within a community, within any community, but we should be working to speak truth in love in the midst of disagreement to bring us closer with each other and closer to God. God loves you. God is love. God's love is in you. Simone Weil uh, fled Paris in 1940, just weeks before the Nazi invasion. She later came to the United Kingdom where she could work as a writer, helping the French resistance movement. In that context, she wrote, the gospel makes no distinction between the love of our neighbor and justice. The gospel makes no distinction between the love of our neighbor and justice. Loving others helps us to come close to them, helps, them, uh, helps us to see them as like us, and to do what we must do to protect them and work for their well-being. But they also saw that everything we do to separate ourselves from each other and from God is also made of the same divine vibration of love that we are, and thus can be used to connect rather than separate. This is a complicated example, but uh, picture it this way. Imagine two people who are being held prisoner. Their captor wants to keep them separate, so builds a wall between them. That makes sense. You want to keep people separate, you build a wall to separate them. But that wall offers them the opportunity to tap messages to each other for solids carry sound better than gas does. The very thing that's meant to separate ends up with some creative thinking being a way of linking the two people together. In trying to separate them, the captor has inadvertently built the very means for communication. This 
concept, of course, has a Greek name because it comes out of Plato's philosophy originally. Um, I'm going to pronounce this once and then hopefully not again. It is mitachu, mitachu. And simply put is that every separation is also a link. Every separation is also a way of connection. That in noting an absence of something, we also can interpret a presence of something in that very absence. For Vaya, this meant that where God seems at first glance to be absent, in war, in poverty, in oppression, is actually where God is most present, working to alleviate this affliction. God is love. So where God is, love is too. To bring love to an area is to reveal God's presence, to pull aside the veil that obscures our vision of God. No matter how many barriers we create, we cannot keep out love. And if not love, then not God either. For even the barriers we create are made of God and will be used by God to help rebuild, to help rebirth, to help reconnect, to help reunify God's children in the world. Look at how Paul does this so effectively in Athens in our story from Acts. Paul meets with many intellectuals and leaders of Athens, which really is to say most of the population, and proceeds to tell them about their unknown God, a detail he's picked up from wandering in their city. He uses one of the very idols they have erected to teach them about God who is not an idol. So why would God reveal God's self in a mysterious way? Paul says that so people, all people throughout the world, would search for God. Our diversity of cultures, of understandings, leads us to seek for God in different ways, but it is for the one God that we are all ultimately seeking. He then quotes Athenian wisdom literature, reminding them that we live in God, we move in God. We exist in God. We are indeed God's children. Paul uses the idols, these barriers from God in most other contexts, to connect people and explain the truth of God. Paul then uses Athenian quotes, wisdom derived from philosophy, seen as separate from holy wisdom in the day, to help show how we are connected in God and through God. Despite the word love never appearing in the Greek text of Acts even once, Paul effectively shows God's love through the transforming of these supposed barriers into ways of understanding God and thus encouraging others to live into God's love in the world. God is love. God loves you. God's love is in you. So live into love. Strive to see the divine vibration in all you meet. Love with your whole being everyone you encounter, for they too are children of God. Don't let barriers stop you from sharing God's love in the world. Seek ways in which the barriers can actually be the means of communication instead. Let the rebirthing of God happen in your heart and in your community. Seek God in your connection with earth, with compassion, with light, with the spiritual practices, with nonviolence, and with love. For God is love. God loves you, and God's love 
is in you. Amen.